Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Uh, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Control Store. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then you I might. did come up with uh, Nick Mason's all sort of secrets. You did. And in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. goes up to 1972 with all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hi, Gary. Hey, Guy. I can see your bed in the background in on the Zoom, your hotel bedroom. It's you just... can see my hotel bedroom. The only reason you can't see yours is because you have a phobia about it and I... always manoeuvre it so you can't see the bed. Or to make everyone think that I'm in a room and you've got a suite. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, again, again, you're just down the road. We are in Geneva. We're back in Switzerland after a short trip into Italy. We did Turin and um, Luca. Luca, beautiful, two beautiful, beautiful places, and now we're back in beautiful, beautiful Geneva. I know. I was thinking about swimming in the lake this afternoon. I know you were, which is insane. And of course, I'm sure a lot of our listeners will relate to this, which is when we came in and we saw that beautiful fountain, and our first thought was the champions. Yep. With, with, you know who wrote the theme tune? No, I don't. Was it Ted Astley? Tony Hatch. No. Oh, yes, the yeah. Tony Hatch Orchestra. But my dad was in it once. He, uh, that he, kid, he took over a submarine which had some Eastern European dictator on it, and he was a disaffected dissident. <laughs> <laughs> with ginger hair for some reason. Was it a wig? <laughs> Uh, I don't know. Oh, I've got to look that episode up. The Champions, great. It was sort of 1960s, wasn't it? With 1960s, yeah. And they all had they all had just slightly superpowers. Anyway, so every time we come to Geneva, we think we think about that. We can't stop ourselves. We have um, a PR person on today. First, legend, yes, legendary music PR. What, what, what I think is a shame is that she started off. She was a music journalist and then wrote a, a really groundbreaking book on Keith Richards. Which I yeah. want to talk about, yeah. and, but then gave it all up to be a PR. Well, we better tell people what PR is. It's public relations, if you don't know, and I'm sure you do. Um, and in the music business, she is one of the the greats. I mean, one of the the hugest of huge. I mean, she looks after Keith Richards still. I mean, Foo Fighters, uh, Rod Stewart, REM, yeah, Madonna through all of her. You know, from the from the very go. And actually, the best way to describe someone at that level is basically gatekeeper, isn't it? 
she is. She decides who who gets to speak to the star, who they you know, it, and it's 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 it takes a certain knack of knowing exactly where to place an artist. And she's doing the rounds now herself. She's her own PR, I guess. I think she's because she's got a book out called Access All Areas, which is a. Uh, uh, it's not really an autobiography. It's uh, it's certainly just it's her life in rock music. Yeah, and in fact, we should be very, very flattered because if anyone knows who are the best people to speak to when you're promoting something, it's her. Yes. And the very fact that we've been put on her list. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, let's get her on. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. But it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I've been sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. Thank you guys for still being around, still making music, still being into it and doing this podcast. It, it's uh, it's fabulous. So great to talk to two guys that have done this. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. It's a, it's get a, good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Barbara. We're going to get vid- visual as well, I think we are, aren't we? Uh, yeah. Alana. Oh, I think I got it. I got it. There she yes. is. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> Where are you? You're in, you're in Europe. We're in Geneva. Nice. It's beautiful there. It's very, very beautiful here. I have to say before we start, I hope you don't mind. I saw Spanda Ballet at the Albert Hall a million years ago ah. when, when True came out. Oh, my God. 1983. Yeah, and it was pretty great. <laughs> wow, well it, well, it moved on a lot since then, uh, it, it, into, it, into various larger venues, but of course, finally into a courtroom, <laughs> uh, which is which is where a lot of bands ended up. We've always used we used to use Alan Edwards a lot. Obviously, that was uh, an in-house. I think we had I can't remember who did the uh, the press for us at that point. That's uh, Albert Hall show, though. It was when it was probably blowing up at its most insane it was. frenzy. And it was- it was. Barbara, we both read the book. We've been on our tour bus and we could read the yeah. book. And, and it's fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm really happy with it, yeah. Well, I've got to say, because it's the second book of yours that um, I've read, and in fact, I mentioned your Keith Richards book in my book because it was book. such a revelation to me as a kid. It was absolutely... Because there'd never been proper rock books then. It was like... All the books you read were by that guy George Tremlett. He used to write all his band. Who <laughs> oh, was yeah, a housing officer? Yeah, he was a housing officer at the GLC. But your, but it was in your book I discovered that Keith. And this is what I wrote about in my book. I said I discovered that Keith Richards stays up for twenty four hours at a time, which I thought was just an interesting lifestyle choice. <laughs> <laughs> we can get to that if you like uh, <laughs> when we talk about Keith. But I just wanted to mention at first uh, the fact, because I saw on your website, you, you represent the Beatles. Um, yeah, we do the Beatles for Apple, their uh, label. You, that, that didn't take you to Glastonbury this weekend? No, uh, we don't do Paul McCartney. He's got, Stuart Bell does Paul. <clears throat> we just work um, with Apple. But no, I actually went to this, I went to four gigs in four days in London. So I had my own mini Glastonbury. What did oh, you do? Which, what, 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 <laughs> I did Elvis Costello with Charlie Sexton at the Hammersmith Apollo, which was 
you know, Charlie Sexton plays with Dylan and yeah, yeah, yeah. taking yeah. him on tour. And he's just the most incredible guitar player. Uh, and then I did the Pet Shop Boys at the Electric Ballroom, which just blew my mind. It was like a stripped down kind of show, one part of that grassroots venue stuff. Um, I'm still quite friendly with Neil. Then I went to the Stones in Hyde Park on Saturday. And on Sunday, I went to Robert Plant and Alison Krauss in Hyde Park. Well, this oh my is God, the, that's, those are all fantastic gigs. But yeah, and on Monday, I went to Wimbledon. On the, the night that, that uh, Paul blew everyone away at, at Glastonbury, uh, Mick Jagger's playing in Hyde Park with the Rolling Stones, and, 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 and we played with Nick Mason in front of a, a huge open-air uh, crowd in, uh, in Lucca in Italy. Mm. Septuagenarians, octogenarian... This is extraordinary. Did you ever think when you were a, a young person that this would still, they would still be the biggest acts in the world? You know, the crazy thing is, yeah, that's the, the fact that they're still around, I guess, none of us thought uh, would happen. But the fact that they're still around and actually better than almost everyone else, that's the mind blowing yeah. thing. Because it was youth that was being sold originally, yeah. wasn't it? There was no concept yeah. of. Well, you know, there's a great thing in the book, speaking of Keith, where I did a Crawdaddy cover story in 1975 and just being trying to be a little bit too clever. I ended the piece with some lyrics from the song The Last Time, inferring that they wouldn't tour again. Oh, that's right. You got into trouble for that, didn't you? And Yeah. So <laughs> I went to see Keith after the show, which in itself, you think, as like this 25-year-old kid journalist is insane, uh, up to the Essex house to his suite and he was really cross I mean he was like who gave you that impression and I just said you know hands up um I was just trying to end the piece in a clever way so I learned my lesson quickly not to do that <laughs> but there's there's something else in that as well because you know we all have this impression of of Keith you know just living the rock and roll dream as Guy was saying up for 24 hours and just you know getting on stage and being a rock god and then but he's not he's a business guy who's got his eye on the paper on the piece you wrote down to fine detail worrying well, about you know, his he's career a music, he's a music guy and he is so fiercely proud of the band and i think yeah he was just like we're not break you know we're not gonna quit touring you know, how can you, how the fuck can you say that? I mean, yeah. and it was just great. Um, yeah, it does. It shows you a side of him that people wouldn't even expect. Forensic. <laughs> also the fact that he even reads the press. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because with, well, I suppose back then there just wouldn't have been so much of it. That wasn't, it was a big deal, wasn't it? When you. Yeah, it was, it was, um, <clears throat> it was really appreciated. And also the frequency of which, you know, lots of the guys in the big bands did solo albums. So, especially the Who, um, in between the mm -hmm. Who albums, there was Roger Daltrey albums and John Atmosel albums and all sorts. And you could, you got to know them. Uh, and they were all, especially when you were promoting their solo projects, they were really kind of grateful, which of course that doesn't happen these days. But, yeah, but the whole thing, because A, rock writers were so important, and as we know, so many writers came from that. But also, like you said, the artist relationship. I, mean, I remember sometime about 76 or 77, when Pete Townsend did a thing for Sounds, where he just wrote these sort of six-page sort of essays for three weeks. 
Every week, for three weeks, there were six pages of just Pete Townsend writing. It was amazing. I mean, when I was, when I was at Sounds, I was writing like 3,000 word features a week, reviewing a couple albums, reviewing a couple of live gigs. I mean, it was crazy how much we wrote. And it was also how wonderful to have a 3,000 word piece by yeah. Pete Townsend yeah. three weeks running. <laughs> Do you think, though, in those days, there was the same fear that there is now for, between artists and writers? Uh, when I say fear, no. I mean on the part of writer, on the part of the artist. Because in those days, it seems there were these superstar writers like Nick Kent and Caroline Kuhn, and they were hanging out with the artists and Charles Shaw Murray, yourself, and and they were there was a scene that both of you were all involved in. It felt very much like everybody was kind of part of the same community, mm. and I think things just long before social media, I think things began to change. Also, the music business was in its infancy. It wasn't really even a business then. You know, it was kind of like um, everybody was discovering, the music press was discovering itself, the record business, you know, selling, making money. It, it was all kind of new. Everybody was kind of on a journey together. And I don't think anyone thought for a minute, um, you know, about, being anything other than really themselves. And even in terms of, you know, drinking special brew at 10 a.m., which Eric Clapton did, and I just didn't write about it. That's right. You were saying that was the, that, that's the thing that's gone, isn't it? Was Is that trust, is that, that people could actually behave how they, well, you know, show started, you the real them because you, exactly. would, you would self-censor. People started getting um, managers to sit in on interviews and, PRs to sit in on interviews, and then people started getting you to sign something. You know, when I was writing at Sounds, I would take the same interview and write about it for an American magazine. And like now, I'm sure everybody would sue. Was yeah. there a sort of paranoia that grew up <laughs> at some point? I mean, I think you mentioned the Eagles in your book. Um, there was a yeah. sort of slight drug paranoia. And, and, and also that's a, a moment when, when management was becoming more powerful and protective of their artists, where that game changed? I think it changed. It, it probably at the root of it was money and sales, because, of course, you know, the whole industry of the music business just exploded hmm. in, in every single way. You know, Rolling Stone, you know, everybody was making money, except probably the music critics. <laughs> What's so fascinating about you, Barbara, is you're American. And you're such an Anglophile. You've based all of your career here in 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 the UK. Um, when you were living back in Chicago, um, growing up as a kid, was it was that always was it was England or, or Britain always the yeah, sort of talk? Always. <clears throat> I was really lucky. My parents. I grew up in a house full of music, and my parents used to go to New York a lot and see Broadway shows, <clears throat> and they'd bring back you know, those little yellow and black playbills, uh, even like Beyond the Fringe with Peter Cook. And, oh, wow. Yeah, all that stuff and that kind of spiky British humor. Just loved it, Monty Python. You know, you have to remember America is such a young country and, you know, we were being, you know, like Hard Day's Night. I mean, how cool did England look in that? Yeah, still did. James Bond movies, you know, The Man from Uncle. All the British bands on the Ed Sullivan show, um, you know, and we had Paul Revere and the Raiders. It was like, well, what did we do? 
<laughs> also, by the way, that's a nice I want to break because you know, you, and this this abiding love you have of musicals, which I think is a is a very interesting, which Gary and I both have as well. Have you seen Moulin Rouge yet? No. Uh, the musical? No. Well, I, the, the film. I mean, you, oh, yeah, it's no, now gone to the, gone to the stage. Yeah. No, we haven't. We've I mean, no, we have It's not like Stephen Sondheim, but if you, it's a jukebox yeah. celebration. It's joyous. So we will. I'm not we, will. We, we will. Yeah. Let's. let's if we ever go. get off this tour, then yes, we will. <laughs> so, so I just want to. I just want to sort of hear about what first turned you on, what, what, yeah. that made you want to go to the UK, and made you want to be a writer. Um, writing, I just was kind of always naturally good at it. I wrote for my high school newspaper. I had a column my senior year, and. Um, you know, I spent all my money. I always had a, a job on the weekend in a, a library and then in a record store. Spent all my money on concert tickets. I used to miss the beginning of school to go buy tickets because they went on sale at 9.30 in the morning. And they sold them at record stores, yeah. which was so great. Um, I don't know. You know, even like a, that movie Blow Up with the... You know, David Hemmings played. It's your own fault. David Bailey type photographer. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. All that stuff. Um, you know, we were getting it thick and fast once the Beatles hit. Like even the red buses, the black taxis. Yeah. The whole yeah, nine yeah. yards. Did you have a peer group though who were you know who were into it or we, because like yeah, all my all my friends loved music. Um and it was um I mean America, like I remember the first big bands in the States mostly being like Peter, Paul and Mary, more folk music. And then obviously the Beach Boys. But for me, it was all about the, you know, the British invasion. It just dwarfed everything else. So you came over to the UK and you work, I think, for Sounds and Enemy. Yeah, and... before that, I came. My parents took us on a family trip. Uh, my dad was a lawyer and he was um, there was an American bar um, convention that's the lawyer um, association. Yeah, not not a, not a hotel type. <laughs> <laughs> bar. But um, yeah, I came over with my parents. We went to London, Liverpool, and Dublin. And um, it, yeah, it just blew my mind. And then when I came to England, I became obsessed with doing my junior year at university here. So I got into an exchange program for that. And um, that was just... Unbelievable. We lived in a bed and breakfast off of um, Gloucester Road. And it was for smart English and drama majors. And we had a class at the Victorian Albert Museum. It was totally unstructured. The Time Out film critic taught us creative writing. Uh, And I just kind of, I was writing by then for the Chicago Sun-Times and sending articles back. That's how I got to know people in the music business. And then eventually kind of talked my way into writing for NME. Now, and you, here's the thing, you did that thing, you liked, you got a place, were you on Cadogan Place or just, uh, no, just on off? Street. Yeah. Yeah, because it was on that thing Street. back then, and it's happened to me as well, there's loads of musicians and writers, people with no money on you, who would luck out in, and live in incredibly posh areas. And you could, there were these flats that just didn't cost that much that you could- Yeah, it was mad, it was now. like, it, Big studio flat on um, Sloan. Well, when I first came to England, an old boyfriend was going to the L- from Chicago was going to the LSE, 
and he had a spare room and he lived on Sloan Street. So for the first 18 months, <laughs> and, and as you say, it wasn't like totally zhuzhy or yeah. really expensive. Um, yeah. And then he got a girlfriend and I had to move out and I found a place four doors down uh, on um, kind of a massive big studio flat um, in an old house that had been, you know, and then as luck would have it, I became a sitting tenant and got 8,000 pounds, which in those days was so much money uh, to leave about three or four years later. And with that and some help from my dad, I bought a flat. I mean, in many ways, it's rock and roll that made those areas expensive in the end, the success of rock and roll. But I'm interested in you as a woman entering a world that pretty much is male dominated in, as, and not just hanging out as a writer and trying to get your way as a writer and muscle in there, but also how the bands treated you um, being a female journalist, because they were rare. The bands were um, actually great. The problem was more like security guys. And, you know, I, I remember going to see The Who at Madison Square Garden and you're always a bit nervous when you're supposed to be on the guest list, especially at those big shows. because So many things could go wrong. And I said, you know, I'm on the guest list. And the guy just went, yeah, sure, honey. And he just wasn't having it. And I just had to stand my ground. And I kept saying, I'm on the guest list. And eventually I got in. But um, I, I didn't feel that I was treated any differently by the bands or anyone, management, um, or anything. I, I think one of the reasons maybe was because I was American. I was very um, tenacious and um, didn't take any shit. And um, I was really interested in their music. Weird as that may sound. And uh, lots of people. But do you think, I think the fact that you're an American in London also, I think that's probably quite glamorous for English, yeah. and English artists. It gives them a legitimacy having an, you know, wow, an American. It's really it definitely worked in my favor. And how did you, how did your relationship with, with Keith Richards come about? I mean, it's quite an extraordinary person well, uh, to befriend. I know, I know. Um, when uh, I moved back here for good after I graduated university and took a full-time job with Sounds, and I was lucky to get that because uh, Penny Valentine had quit and I assumed they wanted another female writer. So that was a really good break because I and they got me a work permit. Um, and the first, my first assignment um, when I moved here was to do a big Rolling Stones, like massive cover story. Fantastic! Was, a great first assignment. I, was, I know, I know. And I was, um, it's only rock and roll uh, was coming out the album, and I was to interview Keith and Mick Taylor separately. I went to interview Keith at the um, Atlantic Records office. And uh, up until then, like everyone, you know, you always think the front man is the main guy. And, uh, and, and Mick is a great front man. But when Keith walked in the room, literally, I wrote, um, which I still think is a pretty good line. Oh, yeah. When Keith Richards walks in a room, rock and roll walks in after him. And it really felt like that. It just felt like... Um, yeah, it, it it's the way he is on stage too. That's just he's got this charisma even in a hotel room, um, and his his whole like um, thing with draping flags over lamps and candles, it it just is intoxicating. 
And the way he speaks, he speaks in a, almost like in a rhythm, like he plays guitar. So like, I was just like, oh my God. I think I left the room as if I'd been hit, hit by a bolt of lightning or something. And then um, obviously having loved interviewing him. The other thing is he's just a great interview. Mm-hmm. He will talk about, you know, he, he just talks in depth about all the stuff that you, you know, I was obsessed with anything about the Rolling Stones. And then I went to do um, a cover story for Crawdaddy in Munich when he was, when they were uh, recording Black and Blue and auditioning guitarists for Mick Taylor. I just then started interviewing more and more and getting to know him. And I had gotten to a point after a couple of years where I, you know, after you, you were really writing an awful lot and we were traveling a lot too in this era, golden era of journalism. And I just decided I'd kind of could see an end inside of the weekly music writer grind. And I wanted to do a book. And um, I originally asked the who. Adultery said yes, Townsend said no. So I moved on to Keith. And there were a couple other journalists, Nick Kent and um, yeah. Peter Erskine, who were also writing about Keith. And, and Keith um, said uh, I could do it. And I think he saw that if he picked me, the book would actually come out, whereas the other two were <laughs> a little bit more in awe of copying his um, Well, yeah, Nick, Nick just wanted to be Keith, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a, yeah. 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 He put, put, so, um, which is in the which so, is yeah. in pistol, obviously. And and then yeah. you got yeah. to, you got to hang out, didn't you, at Redlands and uh, Keith's house and soak in by osmosis everything that is yeah. Keith. Yeah, I mean, I went down to Redlands um, uh, to interview him and to meet him, and and once he agreed to do the book, um, that's probably when I went down to Redlands uh, two or three times, and then he suggested that I go to Canada uh, for the book because they were, the only thing they were gonna do that year was um, these live shows in uh, Canada. The Elma Combo. Um, yeah, for a live album. And of course, by the time I landed, Keith had been arrested uh, for heroin uh, possession and he ended up staying in Canada uh, for a month uh, after the shows and I stayed, which was really the, making of our friendship and um i had a very harrowing time for him you know there was a very real chance he could have gone to prison Mm. you know he got the most insane sentence ever given to man his sentence was to play a concert for the blind Uh, well didn't he he talks about his blind angel wasn't there some girl some young girl who yeah yeah and the concert was surreal as well there's i still have a sweatshirt from that show uh, that he signed in dots, like it was Braille. Oh my God. Was it actually Braille or was it just dots? It was just dots. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been really impressive. Cause one line, I, one thing I remember from the, this, what seems incredible is your access. And this is, I, and, cause I, the book is at home. I, I, it's, I haven't seen it for, picked it up for years, but there's one line I still remember from it, which always struck me as extreme, is when you're at Redlands and apparently Marlon is calling and going, dad, dad, get me a Coke. And Keith goes, oh, I'm bored of being the dad. You get me a Coke. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it, was, it was probably in your book where that rumour came that the first thing Marlon ever spoke, said was room service, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's probably true. <laughs> what I'm, I'm interested in this is, is obviously you're now in his inner circle. 
Keats and you're writing a book about him. And in the same way you, you wrote this latest book, there are artists in there that you still look after. How did you, you know, cross, were you careful not to cross the line into things that you felt might upset them? You're still at the heart of it uh, in public relations. Yeah, no, I think that, yeah, I, it wasn't even, um, of course I was um, aware of um, their privacy and their life, but to be honest with you, the book isn't about them. The book is about me. And before the book came out, there was a bunch of tabloid coverage that said I was going to spill the beans on all my artists that I work with. And that couldn't be further from the truth. I think any really memoir is about the person that wrote it. And I think the thing that comes across the most is just how much I love music. It's really a love letter to music and being mm. lucky enough to get paid to do this for a living. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. What made you want to get out of journalism and become uh, sort of you know, the gatekeeper, the, the public relations person? You know, I was lucky. Um, I've never really looked for a job. Um, after I wrote the Keith Richards book, I owed the bank uh, 10,000 pounds. Um, Which just in those days. Back. It was so much money. <laughs> yeah. And um, at one point I was thinking of suing the bank for letting me talk the guy into letting me have an overdraft. But um, <laughs> I don't think I would have been very successful. Um, so I needed to work. And I, after the book, I didn't want to go back to uh, one of the weekly music papers. So I freelanced uh, for American magazines for a bit and very um, shortly, a short period for the Daily Mail. And uh, Moira Bellis, who was a good friend of mine and was working at Warner Brothers, who I set up NBC with, our PR company, uh, she suggested me joining the press office at Warner Brothers to write press releases. They had a staff writer. So I joined Warner Brothers uh, and for about a year or so, just wrote all the press releases. I was left-handed, and um, if you made a mistake, you'd have to correct it with Tipex. So every day I'd have like either ink or white Tipex all, all down my um, left hand. But yeah, after about a year and a half, somebody uh, quit, and um, and she said, "Do you fancy doing press?" And uh, so I said, "Yeah," and um, it really suited me. Uh, having been a journalist, I still think you you can't get a better uh, education and preparation to be a PR than to be a journalist, because um, 
you're just aware of positioning angles, millions of things. Well, that's it. Cause it's, you're, it's valuable. But so you're going from like trying to fuck, get the truth out of someone to actually sort of manufacturing what that truth is going no, to be. No, PR doesn't. There's a lot of different kinds of PR yeah. and PR people. I'm not one for stunts and I'm really not one for manufacturing. Uh, I certainly like to say I didn't mean that in a, in a yeah. <laughs> I didn't take it. Oh, good. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm not going to like end this now. That's enough. <laughs> Her PR is oh, sitting off screen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, where's your PR? We've got your PR and your manager just <laughs> Exactly. Um, but um but you know, uh, it's about picking the best place to let an artist shine. And who were the first acts you took on that you were given that to uh, Warner Brothers? Well, uh, Atlantic Records was part of WEA. Uh, we all worked all those labels and they had a lot of heavy metal. So I'd have to go the first couple of years. We always had the first band and the last band at Castle Donington. So I had to go on the bus with all these writers saying at 9 a.m. to see Twisted Sister, who were probably opening the bill. And I'd be saying, you know, do you want some coffee or croissants? And they'd all be taking sulfate. <laughs> and, and the state of them on the way home. Um, so, yeah, uh, Modern Romance, I think, was the first. Jeff um, Dean. Uh, yeah. Who went on to write Kinky Boots. Yeah. yeah. And um, then lots of heavy metal. And then very early on, Madonna. So oh. I was really lucky. Well, let's let's talk about Madonna because obviously she, she you turned her you helped turn her into a massive yeah, star. Exactly. Although you know, I think she had a lot. To well, do with yeah, it. exactly. How? In fact, yeah. that's really interesting. How when you first got her was it was was it were you trying to sort of just gently nudge her down particular routes? You felt the incredible talent that she had anyway. <clears throat> no, I mean, um, I don't think you can ever. Um, nudge down certain routes and also in those days smash hits was just starting and all the um press wannabe smash hits magazines were, were pretty much starting it was probably before the face it was really the beginning of a lot of great journalism the music papers had evolved into many different forms of of magazines Again, so like the whole, that was thriving, just like all aspects of the industry probably then. Um, no, Madonna from day one knew exactly what she wanted. She was smart, ambitious, uh, opinionated. You know, I find the best artists, I'm sure you agree, they just have a sense of themselves when, when, in, in every yeah. way. When, you, when, when an American artist comes to you though, I'm assuming they've already got a PR in America. And I, it depends I, how big they are. Right, right, right. Mm -hmm. You know, if they're unknown, quite often they'll just have the person at the label. And what do you um, what do you need from them? Do you sit down and talk to them and try and gauge who they are, what they want to be? Is this person who wants to be tabloid? Is this person who wants to be a broadsheet star? Is there a Well, it's an interesting question. And in an ideal world, you would. But these days, you're not afforded that luxury of, of um, time. And I think also probably these days the manager might convey, but the best PRs have a sense anyways of where people should go. You know, I'm a newspaperaholic. I'm kind of never happier than on the weekend playing on the couch, as long as Chelsea have won. Um, reading, um, I couldn't resist, you know, reading all the newspapers. Yeah. <laughs> but um, 
Yeah, um, you know, when Madonna started, it was a very, uh, in the 80s, pop was in its throes yeah. of, but yeah. I would and, uh, would you say I would say one of the major up. things that Madonna did right and um, you know I I worked with Madonna right I did two albums with her but um that that's, very good as well <laughs> thank you well it's the proudest thing of <laughs> like a prayer is the proudest moment of my recording career no question well I mean but, it's only one of the greatest songs yeah. ever so. I thought but, you uh, said it was playing on my solo album guy you're such oh, a <laughs> right. what a tart. It's a tie. It's a tie, Gary, obviously. But um, no, but I would say, I remember at the time, I was that Madonna did it, because obviously she became much deeper as an artist as she went on. She addressed fantastic themes and became very controversial. But she was, she did, and I don't know how much you might have had to do with this, where she did this thing of being, I would say, one of the first people who was perceived as a pop artist who demanded that sort of in-depth broadsheet analysis and coverage. Yeah, I mean, uh, one thing I've always been keen on is not to pigeonhole an artist with one, you know, not to just go down that smash hits road. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, smash hits used to ask artists, what color is Wednesday? And people <laughs> used to say, people that had, uh, were probably lacking in um, confidence would say, what's the right answer? You'd be like, there is no yeah. right answer. The whole point was to have fun. What Madonna did to create that was very early on, she didn't, she did hardly any press. So she was way less accessible than perhaps other people. And that just helped uh, create the enigma that I think that she mm -hmm. is. I think you've got to, the biggest thing about her probably was that air of mystery. But I guess at the beginning, yeah. when it's all happening, that's, in a way, the easiest bit, it's when things start to go wrong that yeah. your job becomes, you know, when you're putting out fires, is, is, is that the person you see yourself as being the best at? Or do you see yourself being the best at starting an act from fresh? I think you just have to be an all rounder. You know, I think it's, it's equally, it's very exciting working with a unknown at the first, it's like when you're a journalist and you first write something and you see your byline in the paper, it's such a buzz. It's probably like when you go on stage, yeah. you know. And, or hear a song on the radio. It's the, yeah, the, exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's the kick. And then, um, you know, when uh, when you are doing PR for someone and you, you see something in the paper that you helped get, it's, again, really rewarding. With the big, big acts, it's really a case of less is more and positioning is so key. But I'm interested mm -hmm. in that bit where the artist becomes very difficult to control and become so big that and, and things start to go wrong does it make the PR feel smaller and 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 it's a tougher job that isn't it it depends I mean of course in the 90s and probably 2000s you know the circulations of the British press were massive you know the Sun and the mirror were selling three million a day and probably the mail and, and, you know, and, and ditto magazine sales, you know, NME was over a million at one point. But also, and, and you could control it more uh, to a degree. You know, the greatest saying that was ever invented was it is what it is. Sometimes <laughs> things happen and you just have to move on. And the great thing about the papers here is there's so many of them and there still are. Because tomorrow there's another story that's going to yeah. occupy. But now that situation is the balance of all that is changed so much because of Instagram and, you yeah. know, artists. But also, would you say there's a thing also, because you've moved from a world where 
like you were saying, that world of the music papers, the music scene, where music was music. It was this contained world that only the people involved in, you know, and stuff leaked out when it got really big. But then now, from the 90s onwards, I would say, like with, with what you're dealing with, it's just showbiz now. It's not its own world. It's just part of the absolute mainstream. Yeah, and also the problem nowadays is the reason that it's so important to, you know, have big social numbers and the reason everyone wants TikTok is because we're competing as an industry against a million other things. You know, back in the day... So you don't have to buy. Yeah, exactly. There was, <laughs> you know, there was some books, there was some movies, there was TV. Football was nothing like it is now. Mm. You know, so mm -hmm. it was much more controlled and you had less choice. And, and you know, I think now um, people just move on. I don't even know if some people listen to a song all the way through, yeah. which is so depressing. Well, that's a big thing. One of the big Spotify analytics, isn't it, is how long people listen to it, that they time that. They time apparently, you know, if you get past 14 seconds or something, then that's a result. <laughs> how, how, how? Not even get to the chorus. Yeah, exactly. Well, this is it. When people are writing for TikTok, there was a recent report about that. You know, the writers now put the chorus right at the front because they want people yeah. to, on TikTok just to put that first 30 seconds up. But, yeah. but talking of, um, yeah, now we're talking about Instagram and, and stuff like that. It, it's impossible to have mystique. And so is mystique no longer important anymore? And how do you control an artist when they're filming themselves having breakfast and putting that up in the morning? Oh, you don't control an artist. An artist controls the artist. And I think the artist always did. The true artists always control themselves. Look at Bob Dylan. I mean, I don't think, mm -hmm. or Bruce Springsteen. I don't think anyone really, you know, or Dave Grohl yeah. or the Pet Shop Boys. I mean, I think that... Classy. Exactly, and mm -hmm. I think that's what I was saying before. Even the, the live shows, I think everything is a manifestation of themselves. And it comes from them, which is how it should. Yeah. But now, Mystique, you just, you know, you just have to roll with the punches. But is really. that why you think artists come and go so quickly? Because there isn't a way of building building a Mystique and a, a kind of, yeah, you, think, know, the, you know, I remember when the, the last sort of big band to come around that still had some of that were probably the Libertines. And it was like, you've got to go to see that show. If everyone's got to go to that place to see the band play because you couldn't see it on YouTube. I think that artists come and go uh, too quickly these days because they're just not as good. <laughs> I think that I still uh, hold a lot of faith in the music. Call me old fashioned. And I think the people that have connected in a major, major way are the ones that just come up with really good songs. Even though it seems these days it takes thirteen writers to write some of them, I th yeah, I think a lot, there's a. I, I think some of this stuff is a bit unfair when they say, "Oh, there's so many writers on a song," and I think a lot of that is because the pie is now so small. The only thing you can offer someone on a song yeah. is a bit of the writing. That's why there's so many writers. It just always you makes know. me laugh when we're writing a press release. I always want to put like who wrote it, who produced it. And sometimes that list goes just on and on and on. Yeah, well, there's, no, there's, a, there's a Beyonce song that has more writers than there are words in the song. <laughs> <laughs> one, of, one of the, uh, one of the uh, interesting things in the book is, is, is artists' different approach to photo sessions and front cover shoots. Uh, I'm thinking of, of, of Aerosmith to, to the Foo Fighters. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, the Aerosmith one is great. Well, I just... Um left Warner Brothers to start NBC, my own company. And it was, I went to LA for an Aerosmith Q cover 
And it was the first time I was like another label was paying for the trip. I lost my passport. It fell out of my pocket when I landed at LAX. You know, when you get really hot after a long flight, you take your jacket off. So, I mean, right, that should have been a sign that I should have just gone right back to England. And um, it was the Q photographer. There were two of them. And I only met one because one of them overdid it the first night in LA. And I never, ever saw the him. And Q were going through a kind of... Um, a crisis of confidence in terms of how they were looking and they were reinventing themselves as more of a style magazine with Aerosmith. That makes no sense. <laughs> and the photographer had 10 different plans for the shoot at the Sunset Marquee. And we had to get a, um, a kind of um, a room, a, a suite. Uh, they needed like a rider as if you were doing a gig with enough food to feed like the whole band, like, half of a delicatessen and we had to dress the room moroccan themed i mean it was insane this is about this again you're talking about the cover of a music magazine i mean now the yeah. sort of budget and everything i mean you'd have to be doing what michelle obama for the cover of vogue to get yeah, exactly. <laughs> but um it was crazy it was really mad um and anyways all the pictures ended up being completely unusable out of focus and they ended up using one shot he'd taken with a small camera at a video shoot the day before. It's gone down in history as the worst Q cover ever. <laughs> but then you said Dave Dave Grohl just turned up with a bunch of sort of his washing. Dave Grohl, yeah. we were in Argentina doing a um, GQ cover and um, Dave had a late night and he woke up in the morning with a really bad hangover. And the first thing he thought was, fuck, I'm doing the GQ cover today. So he got some mini cans of Coca-Cola out of the fridge and put it on his eyes so they wouldn't be so baggy, which I thought was really great. <laughs> uh, no, Eddie Vedder came to do a mojo. Oh, this was Eddie, uh, yeah. Eddie oh, Vedder, Eddie, yeah. Laundry, but yeah. Yeah, with, um, you know, everyone usually has a stylist and hangers full of yeah. pressed clothes. He had this laundry basket full of all these crumpled T-shirts. It was great. But we, that's we also, it. but that could, again, that could be someone in control of their image because, you know, being Eddie yeah. Vedder, Mr. Grunge, that could be as much of a contrivance as having three stylists. <laughs> yeah. It endeared me to him. <laughs> but, but the importance of front covers, God, I can remember that. I mean, we all fought for them, but you fell out. Yeah, I mean, is it a cover? I know. Is it a cover? Is it a cover? We're only doing it if it's a cover. But but I, rem I remember in the book you talk about in the earlier time when you were a journalist, how you fell out with the Eagles and Irving Azoff over a cover as well, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, that um, was really unfortunate because the illustration was horrific and it was nothing to do with me, but I got blamed for it. Um, oh, yeah, the car crash. Life in the fast lane. Like, yeah. Um, but, and the article was a little bit snidey. I'd interviewed them previously and, and then came to interview them on the Hotel California record and they changed a lot. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that was very unpleasant also, for a couple of years. I wasn't allowed to go to any Eagle shows. But I think everything was quite unpleasant around them then anyway, wasn't it? They all hated each other. and. <laughs> yeah, I think it was a little bit toxic. Yeah, where, cocaine psychosis. Were you, where were you during the, the Live Aid concert? Uh, were, you, were, you, were you looking after any of those artists at the time? No, um, actually, weirdly, my parents um, were... Um, my parents were visiting England and we went um, on somewhere, probably Devon maybe or Cornwall. I remember sitting in a bar in a nice country hotel watching it. I was around for Live 8, um, 
the kind of um who did you have i don't know uh on that madonna and rem okay. that was when madonna did like a prayer with the gospel mm. choir in hyde park it was unbelievable you uh you talk about rem you talk about how michael stripe didn't want to um do any press how frustrating is that for you to, as a pr person when someone says you know i don't want to talk to them well not only did they not do any press they didn't tour uh for five years so the first two albums i worked with them out of time and automatic for the people uh peter buck and mike mills would come over to the uk a lot and do press uh and michael didn't do any but weirdly and this is this should not have happened it actually made rem bigger uh, and again, just going back to music, it was those two albums. It was were there two of the best-selling albums in the UK ever. Um, Automatic for the people sold sold two million in England. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Pretty unheard of. But it is a pretty high-risk strategy, isn't it? Because there was the story of remember that band DMF who had that one big hit, you know, unbelievable, which was you know massive. And then they put out another album, and because he'd been misquoted, the singer wouldn't talk to any do any press, and they were finished. That was it. So it's like, well, you, said, you know, you've got to have real faith in what, I mean, obviously for R.E.M. it was the right thing to do. But. Yeah, they were just lucky and uh, the music was great. Everything kind of worked. Again, going back to being, um, keeping a kind of mystique, what it did was it just made Michael Stipe um, kind of more attractive mm -hmm. in the eyes of the press and the media and the fans. And, and you know, probably the fact that Madonna has done relatively few interviews in her career that's done the same yeah you know i think yeah when you're that big and you're uh seen to be everywhere not speaking all the time is probably a good thing yeah it's what what do we want from our celebrities you see because I, I mean we're growing up loving music as as you did uh you know these were icons these were larger than life these were he heroic figures that didn't live ordinary lives um, and, I, and, I, and I still think that that's kind of still what we want. Uh, yeah, we do want that. Yeah. You, want, you want to see a little window, a little snapshot into the world that they occupy. But I think then doing interviews, you know, reading about uh, artists in the press was pretty much the only way to get a little insight into them. And now, of course, it's completely turned out. Exactly. Here's my, yeah, like you had that big. What was the thing with with Madonna, for instance, in the Guy Ritchie years? When what was it? There was an absolute meltdown because uh, she had a necklace with "Mum" written on it, which didn't get photoshopped out. Oh, that yeah, that was just you know where she agreed to do a photo. She asked simply; she didn't want a bad crop, and then the sub on the paper fucked up. <laughs> Yeah, but why not be a mum? Why not say mum? <laughs> no, I don't know. That's yeah. what she wanted. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I get that. Um, Fair enough. What, yeah. what I, what's interesting about your uh, career is that genres don't seem... You don't seem to be a one-note genre person. You know, you, you have... The only thing you didn't like was punk, you seem to say. Yeah. But you've gone through so many changes into the 80s with Depeche Mode and, and obviously, you know, post-grunge with the Foos and, and then into the sort of more DJ producer age with Mark Ronson. But what, the question I really want to ask is, is what, what is the, what for you is the, is the greatest moment in, in, in all of these 40, 50 years, you know, the, of rock music that we're talking about? What is that bit that you look back on and think that was the moment, that was the time, it was incredible then? 
Oh, you know, there's so many of them. I'm, I'm not shying away from answering it, but truly there's many moments. And the thing is, I still have them. You know, I, standing in Hyde Park on Sunday, listening to Robert Plant and Alison Krauss with the sun shining, it was amazing. Mm. And, and I think you always have to be appreciative of, of the now as much as the past. You know, if we all were just saying, God, it was so great 20 years ago or 30 years ago. I mean, yeah, seeing the Stones record in the studio, unbelievable. You know, pretty much every single Madonna tour, a pleasure to be mm. at. Just incredible. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I like, and also, Probably one of the greatest moments was when Chelsea won the Champions League. The first <laughs> well, you must know. Because you're now, you're now a, a non-exec director, aren't you? I am. At Chelsea. Yeah. Congratulations. I, I'm an Arsenal yes. fan, so... Uh... <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, um, it's you can imagine. Imagine if it happened to you. It's like yeah. Christmas. Yeah. Well, you did. At least you lived in Chelsea. Although then you moved to Maida Vale. Didn't you? <laughs> yeah. Talk, talking, talking of new new acts, you've got some Vincent, right? Absolutely. Oh, love. with um, adore. With and, and listen, we are waiting here. We want, we want Annie on. Yeah. Right? We want her on the on on our podcast. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll try and sort that. She's actually. Playing t- uh, tomorrow night in London. Yeah, I know. No, yeah, we and we're here. I know. And then she- and opening for Roxy. What a bill that is. Yeah, I think yeah. Guy and I are going to go out to New York, I think, to New see York, that especially show. for that, yeah. And she's got a fantastic keyboard player as well. Oh, well, let Ra- us know. Rachel Eckworth. Yeah. We will. We'll, yeah, we'll, no, I'm looking forward to it. We'll let you know, because we want we'll, we know, we know yeah. Phil and, and Brian, obviously. I think having a variety um, is is... The thing is, our roster is schizophrenic, I always say. You know, we've got Metallica, Ali Murs, and Mark Ronson as clients. Three acts that couldn't be more different. Yeah. And the great thing about that is it means that you're talking to all sorts of different journalists and all sorts of publications instead of just getting pigeonholed as into one. I, just, know, I wouldn't, ask, wouldn't ask you to name names, but um, I'd say, are there people who, you, who have come to you and you flat out go, absolutely not, not going there, not interested? Well, you know, again, I go. It all goes back to the music. Yeah. So yes. Yeah, because because you look you looked after Rufus Wainwright for quite a while. Then he left, and now yeah. he's he's back with you. Oh, I've uh, always looked after him. I just managed him briefly, I and see. that didn't work out. I see. <laughs> but um, no, I mean, I worked with James Blunt for his first two albums, and then you know we're independent PR, so everyone's entitled to move on. Uh, uh, I, and I work with them again and it's been great. I must say, cause that must've been very lucky for, or very prescient of both of you with Rufus to realize that's not, you know, and to, to, to get yeah, out of that was, before, yeah. before you kind of mess the relationship up. Exactly. Yeah. I just wanted to, to, cause I know you look after Depeche and you, you obviously look after the foods and, oh, yeah. and, uh, and the great loss this year of Andy Fletcher and Taylor Hawkins mm-hmm. and, um, you know, two fantastic people in, in the music business. This is, uh, it's been a hard year, hasn't it? Yeah. Awful. And I think it was within the space of two, three months. Um, yeah. Taylor mm-hmm. died the end of March and Andy the end of May. So, um, yeah, just, devastating awful way too young there's not much to say no 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 just i just wanted to mention their names because it seemed just um yeah no i walked into the there's a deli in saint john's wood to get a sandwich for lunch shortly after taylor died and they were playing times like these and i just completely welled up i i first i first saw depeche uh with and andy with um 
playing in, in Crocs near Basildon back in 1980. <laughs> and I remember going to that gig, you know, full of envy of what they were doing, but they hadn't been signed, you know, and it was, a, it was an interesting moment to see these young, fantastic boys. Yeah, I mean, I used to, uh, Andy, um, I went to football with, and I was friendly with Andy long before we started working together. We've worked with Depeche since we started NBC, so we've worked with Depeche about 22 years now. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, every album since Exciter, but um, yeah, I'm so I'm, yeah, yeah, just awful, um, awful, awful. And 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 it, what's awful and what's difficult, I suppose, is 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 moving on as the as the ones who are left behind in any group when someone goes, like when when uh, when Entwistle left the Who, or you you, you know, or Charlie mm. has left the Rolling Stones. Mm. It's making that saying, you know, maybe this family is bigger than just the guys on stage it's also the people in the audience it's all the people that surround the, yeah. the act and you feel the uh the their loyalty is is the reason to continue <laughs> thank you very very much barbara it's been See, great talking so, to you yeah i know what you mean and just there's not much to say after you lose two great people no. but it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you both thank well, you so so much and, and yeah we um yeah. but yeah we're We'll let you know if we're going to New York. <laughs> Next time in person. Yeah, let us let me know so we can sort you out with St. Vincent. Listen, yeah. good luck. Good luck. Well, well, that there's many in your address book we'd love to. Yeah, believe <laughs> okay. me. Yeah, yeah, yeah we'll pretty. be on to you. But, uh, we do a fair amount with you, though. What's that? Um, we're all, yeah, we're doing artists with you all the time. Fantastic, yeah. Brilliant, we'll keep them coming. Sir, Thank you so much, Barbara. I think Serge from Kasabian's going to do something. Yes, yes. He, is. he is. He is, yeah, yeah. yeah. So... Um, Good luck with the book. I've got to say thank you for that Keith Richards book because it was it was an absolute seminal book for me as a kind of kid uh, wanting to become a musician and it was like made me think yeah this looks like the way, the place uh, to be so thank you and if you want to Gary we'll have to go to Arsenal yes Chelsea Arsenal. absolutely absolutely thank you Barbara good luck with the book yeah, yeah thanks so much good luck with the tour all thank the best. you hey that was Aww. interesting do you know what Very I just just to say that if anyone wants to read any of her articles. There's a fantastic resource online called Rocks Back Pages. Do you know about this guy? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Bar- I it's think really Bar- good. Barney Hoskins runs it, uh, and you can go on there and find stuff. But uh, And the book's great. She's uh, it, it was an interesting angle for us, wasn't it? It was, yeah. It was, it was new. Like I said, you know, poacher turned gatekeeper sort of thing. Um, but I would also, I don't know if it's in print or if it still exists, but I would thoroughly recommend anyone to read her Keith Richards book from 1979. Yeah, I'm not sure it that it's... It was an absolute eye-opener. I think you'll have to find it secondhand because I think what we didn't yeah. mention is is Bobby Gillespie. The reason she wrote this book is Bobby Gillespie phoned her and said, "Oh, you got to put that Keith Richards book out again," and she said, "No, oh, I'm going to okay. I'm going to write my own." Um, uh, so um, yeah, but I'm, I'm sure it's out on, on one of those. Uh, or you can get it on on the internet somewhere, or I can I could I could u- use yours, couldn't I, guy? You could use mine if you want, Gary, yeah. If you don't mind. When we get home. If we ever get home. If we ever get home. <laughs> uh, many, we've got a few weeks left. Two weeks left, I think. Two weeks, two weeks left. left. Just over two weeks. Uh, but we know there are quite a few raconteurs in our diary between now and There are, indeed. There. Yes, we will not let you down. We won't. We'll see you next time. It's good night from me. And it's good night from them. <laughs>